I'm so glad that you are joining us. Welcome to week three out of this very helpful series, Glimpses of God, rooted in the book of Esther. Everyone these days loves watching movies and TVs. I, I think we've probably watched and binged more movies and television in the last 14 months and multiple lockdowns than we probably have in our lifetimes. Let me just say a few. Some are old, some are newer. Uh, Braveheart, Saving Private Ryan. Maybe you love watching The Crown, The Lord of the Rings, The Marvel Universe, every Hallmark movie, Law and Order, or the variations of those. Maybe Godzilla versus Kong or Love in the Time of Monsters. Here's the point. No matter what you watch, we love watching war or drama or personal pain or invasion or the end of the world or relationships. And we love watching every single breakup. We love to laugh and to cry. We love watching them, to be entertained by them. Why? Because we love to escape into the stories. But the very things that we love to escape into and feel, we don't actually want to live through. No one wants to be Braveheart for real. No one wants to face down an orc if that was possible. No one wants to go through 15 breakups to find true, real love. But what happens? I mean, what really happens when we're forced to live in the moment that actually we love watching? What happens when life moves from escapism or entertainment to reality? Well, I think we'd all agree this season has been that moment. For yourself, for myself, we've all been forced to live in a world that we used to like watching, the end of the world and pandemics and all, but we didn't want to experience it. And that's why the book of Esther is so helpful. I mean, Esther herself was living literally in a political horror film that no one wants to live in, and yet there she was. And at this moment in our journey as a church, we arrive to the part of the story where everything goes not just bleak, it goes really dark. It reads like this in Esther 3.1. If you've got a Bible, we'd love you to turn to the book of Esther. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman the Agite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. Now it starts with three little words. After these events. What events? Oh, the events are Esther became queen, and Mordecai saves the king's life and thwarted an assassination plot. All this is good. All this seems right. And suddenly, all the good and the right is swept away. What we begin to hear in this book is life is not fair. And just because you're good or kind or thoughtful or a good citizen does not mean you will not experience injustice. Five years has passed since Esther became queen. Five years has passed since the king's life had been spared. And then comes Haman. Now this verse might just seem like some boring administration, promotion, and announcement, and no one pays attention. Oh, oh no, far from it. Haman's called an agite. Now in Hebrew, Haman's name in Hebrew sounds like the word wrath, which shows us things aren't going to be good. But more, who are Haman's people? Where does that phrase, the Agite, even come from? Well, to understand the power of this moment, we have to go back, way back to when the Jews are wandering in the desert post-Egypt. Haman is a direct ancestor from a tribe called the Amalekites. Now, hold on with me. We're going to do some history here. But I, I trust me, by the end of this, this is going to be very personal for you. 
Many of God's people that made it out of Egypt finally are free, no longer slaves. 420 years, it's broken. They saw God split the Red Sea, they ate manna and quail, they drank water from a rock, and then such injustice takes place. Some of them are killed, and some of them, can you imagine, are captured by raiding parties and put back into slavery. There's a surprise invasion against the Israelite camp by a group called the Amalekites. This is a large nomadic tribe that controlled the caravan routes between Egypt and Arabia. It reads like this in Exodus 17.8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites. The attack was violent, unprovoked, without mercy. It was life-threatening. Now, many years after this moment, which was seared into the collective consciousness of the Israelites, it's recorded like this in Deuteronomy 25.17. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and you were worn out, they, they met you on your journey and they attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Now there's more here than meets the eye. See, this large nomadic tribe actually comes from the same family as the Jews. The Jews come from a guy named Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now the Amalekites had ties to Jacob's brother, whose name was Esau. Esau's relatives become the tribe we know as the Edomites. And they, in history, had joined in marriage and military alliance with the Amalekites. So this ongoing old unresolved family battle now has larger consequences than either brother ever understood long before talking about stew and birthrights. And it's not just about unresolved history. This was an opening of a new ongoing struggle, and the goal here is to destroy the Jewish people. But why? Because the powers of darkness want to stop the work of God through the Jewish people because they know it will lead to the redemption of the world through Jesus. What is actually happening on the ground physically that just appears opportunistic or tribal or relational or unresolved is actually more. It's a conflict between the gods of the Amalekites and the true living God himself, who is connected to the Jewish people. The war happening down here is actually reflecting the war up here. Well, later, the story continues to get worse. In the book of Judges, the Amalekites invade or are connected to raiding six times. And then after the time of Judges, God raises up the first Jewish king named Saul. And God has a personal conversation with Saul about the Amalekites. And it reads like this in 1 Samuel 15 too. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of angel armies says. I'm going to punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came out of Egypt. Now go Saul and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Don't spare any of them. Wipe them completely out. But then if you keep reading, it says in verse 9, but Saul and the army spared Ega, the king. And the best of the sheep and cattle, the fattened calves and the lambs and everything that was good. They were unwilling to destroy completely everything, but everything that was despised or weak, they totally destroyed. Now, if you keep reading, it says in verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel the prophet. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and not carried out my instructions. And what was his instructions? Wipe out the Amalekites. Years later, God talked to Saul just before he died, the day before he died. And listen to what God says to the first king of Israel, 1 Samuel 28, 18. 
Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The, the Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. This is actually Samuel speaking on behalf of God. You're going to die. I'm dead, and you can read the story about that, and you're about to be dead too. So with all that background and spiritual conflict and tribal warfare and disobedience and Saul not doing what he was supposed to do, we come to Haman and find out that his ancestry is directly back to that Amalekite king. So generations later, the, ethnical, the ethnic spiritual war is far from over. Okay, back to the story. Verse 2 in, in chapter 3 of Esther. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor. The royal officials at the king's gate asked, for Mordecai, asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Huh, day after day, they spoke to him, but Mordecai refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. Oh. Bound down in this culture was not always connected to the worship of the individual, but sometimes it was connected to bowing down to the gods they represented. But more often it's about honor and respect, allegiance. It's publicly saying, I'm for this guy. I agree with this guy. He represents the law and I'm okay with what he stands for. So now the question, why would Mordecai not bow down to Haman? Some say he was jealous because he didn't get the promotion that Haman did, and he had saved the king's life. I don't think so. Others think that the king in this promotion made Haman godlike. And Mordecai's like, I'm not going to bow down because then I would be violating the Ten Commandments. But it's hard to see that the king would make his second in command a god to rival himself. See, what's really going on is history here. Mordecai is refusing to go down the, down the road that Saul did. He's going to obey God. He will not stand and play games with his mortal enemy. And here's the connection. Remember this. Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe Saul comes from. He's part of the same family. He's going to be the better, obedient Saul. Just like Vashti made a decision, like we found out, that affected basically every woman in the Persian Empire, now Mordecai's decision is going to make an effect on every single Jew. Here we see religiously inspired civil disobedience. Because remember, the king had commanded, you need to bow down towards Mordecai. So he says, Mordecai, sorry, you need to bow down towards Haman. And Mordecai said, no. So again, we're, we're confronted with this question. So when is it right to be religiously inspired to civilly disobey? We're going to get to that in a few weeks. Okay, back to the story. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, Jewish, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Oh, he's a Jew. Huh. He's one of those people. Haman says, I know about those people. I've been taught from childhood who they are and what they did to our people. And it's there. It's this historic, demonically inspired hate where Haman says, I don't want to wipe out just that guy. This is a great chance to wipe them all out finally. So in the 12th year, a King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, that's poor, that means in Persian, lot, 
The lot was cast in the presence of Haman to select the day and month. And the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. So he cast lots. This is an act of witchcraft, divination. He's searching out from the gods to find out when he could commit with their blessing the killing of every single Jew. Now, lots in this culture were not using sticks. There were terracotta cubes with the names of gods on them connected to the months, and they would throw them down to find out the will of the gods. Literally, this reads in Hebrew, he threw the dice, but not for gambling. It's actually demonic permission to see when this act can take place. And yet I love when you read the Proverbs that we are reminded of the sovereignty of God. Proverbs 16.33, the lot, is, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from God. In other words, God's in control, not some false God and definitely not Haman. Let's remind ourselves again. God is silent. He is not absent. God has the final say. Well, Haman is calling on the same dark forces his ancestors had been connected to. He's being inspired and led to stop the true living God's work through the Jewish people, which will touch the whole world. But let's not forget who wins in the end. God does. But even though we know God wins in the end, where's God in the middle? Well, Haman sees his opening. He can now use Mordecai's ongoing religiously inspired civil disobedience to settle a much older score that started way before the Persian Empire existed. Actually, it's being fueled by forces that existed before, well, or at the beginning of the creation of the world. So the persecution begins like many do. If you read about persecution in history, it always begins quietly in administration, in bureaucracy, using laws to target groups of people that are weaker. So Haman is now in a new position and he has ongoing royal access to talk to the king like basically no other. So it says in verse 8 that Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples of all your provinces, of all your kingdom, who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they don't obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Now, by the way, you might not have caught it, but this is the only reference in the book of Esther to God's ways, the Torah, the law. He calls them the Jewish customs. It's the reference to living a holy life according to the Old Testament. It's viewed as terrible and dangerous. It goes against our culture, O king. They don't obey our, our laws completely, O king. They're different than us. They have different views. They have different gods. They have different understandings. They're not assimilating into our values. They're not submitting. They're a threat to our cultural, spiritual, and political fabric. See, we, we can see that the Jews that decided to stay and not go back to the promised land under Ezra, they're good citizens. They're even in the court. They're saving the king's life. Even the queen is a Jew. So we know that Jews are good citizens, but they have not, this verse tells us, fully assimilated into per per uh, Persian culture. They're still living in part under God's law. So they're viewed as rebellious. They're not getting with the program. And Haman plays on the king's needs and his fear. As we would say these days, he exaggerates. He uses fake news. He, he says, oh, oh, you gotta understand how dangerous these people are. And then he, he brings it home. He sweetens the pot with lots and lots of money. Oh, oh, verse nine, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them all. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Now I've heard this story my whole life. 
growing up in church. But only this week when I was praying and researching did I find out that in this time of history, two-thirds of the whole empire's national gross product would equal this price. It's like someone going, we'll use the United States as an example because they have such a large GDP. And someone saying, if you do this thing, I'm going to give you personally two-thirds of your GDP. I'm just going to put it right in the treasury. Now, we go, wow, Haman had that much money? No, no. Actually, it's connected to the Jews. What he's going to say is, I'll bring some personal money, but actually, we're going to remove the Jews' possession and their homes and their positions. See, what we're reading here is actually what the Nazis did. Stole art and homes, even their golden teeth. See, what we see planned here is fully what we saw 70 plus years ago with the Nazis, the full out killing of a race and a plundering of the race. So the guy says to the king, look, there's a bunch of people that are religiously, politically, spiritually not with us. Not really. And so let me wipe them out and then we're gonna take all their money and then you get it all. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, he said. And do with the people as you please. This king once again shows how unwise he is, how he's led astray by bad advisors. He's fickle, he's unjust, he's evil. He gives his signet ring, the symbol of his power, the item that actually makes things law in this culture, and gives it into the hand of a person he trusts, even though he's evil. He gives over the power of the state to make evil laws. Yeah, kill him. And, and do what you want with all the money. You got my credit card, you got my blank check, do what you want, I trust you, I trust your advice. Okay, here's where it gets wild, verse 12. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned, and they wrote out in the script of each province and in each language of each people all of Haman's orders to the king's uh, satraps and the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of various people. They were written in the name of King Xerxes or Xerxes, himself and sealed with his own ring. And dispatches were sent by couriers all across the king's provinces with orders to destroy and kill and annihilate, listen to that language, all the Jews, young, old, women, children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, to plunder their goods. Now watch this. You can see the hand of supernatural evil here. This isn't just human. This is the exact description but in the reverse of the will of God. God said to Samuel, said to Saul, you go to the Amalekites and you wipe them out for their wickedness. I'm judging them. Now Haman is going to, as their ancestor, do the exact opposite to God's people and finish the work of his ancestors and the gods that inspired them. Now in this growing dark and dangerous time where nothing less than Holocaust is being formed and planned, the date shows us that God is just in control, and he's going to work all things out. See, there's a connection to this date and the Passover. What date was the order to kill all the Jews given? On the 13th day of the first month. Right. And when's the Passover date? When did God save his people from the angel of death and finally free his people from another wicked king with all the power? Oh, on Passover. And when's Passover? Exodus 12, 18, watch this. In the first month, you are to eat bread and uh, eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 
21st day. The Passover celebration is scheduled for the day after the call to slaughter all the Jews. Will God save his people again? Does God lie? Are his promises true? Yes, he will save his people. Just like he saved them out of Egypt, he's going to save them in Persia. They will celebrate Passover again. And yet, the people of God are living in the middle. And they don't have the assurance we have. But the dates show us God's up to something. Now, even more terrifying is the command is sent out as law 12 months before the killing begins. Can you imagine the fear, the social isolation? The command is not just to the army or governors alone, it's to neighbors. You are to kill every Jew and plunder them. Can you imagine the utter fear, the utter hopelessness, the waiting, the long, scary waiting, always looking over your shoulder, knowing that your neighbors and the local government is going to come kill you on a certain day, and they're eyeing your property. Can you imagine? I was thinking about this this week, looking at my kids writing the sermon. What would I do with my three babies? What would I do knowing this was coming? Well, this dark moment ends like this. A copy of the text of the edict was issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that one day. And then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. So Haman thinks everything's good. He sits down for a drinking banquet with the king that he's just manipulated. He thinks life is good. He's got all the power. He's finally going to do what his ancestors could not, and he's going to win. Oh, but we know the end of the story. Oh, God's sovereign, and God's going to win. Just like the story of Jesus himself, all those people with all the early power, what did Peter preach? Only a few months after the resurrection in Acts 4.27, indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, together with non-Jews and the people of Israel in this city, conspired against the holy, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed But see, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen, God. Who's in charge? Go ahead, you kings. (laughs) Go ahead, you leaders, with all your power, you that drink and think you're in control, you that embody the values of our culture today, you think that you're so enlightened, you who attack and mock God and uh, mock His word, go ahead. You're here today and God tomorrow. As the psalmist says in Psalm 2.1, why do the nations conspire? And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break off their chains and throw off their shackles. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. We know that God's going to win. These Jews will celebrate the Passover. They will be saved. But this passage is like celebrating Good Friday. We always want to rush to Easter and have the victory and the party, but we need to sit in this dark moment because out of this, we start learning some stuff that is so not just helpful intellectually, it's what the Spirit of God is trying to say to you, to me, to this church. First, this passage reminds us that even in our difficult times, like we have been going through for the last 14 plus months, there are many, many of our brothers and sisters who are actually living like Esther and Mordecai under terrible moments, and there is no way out. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. Do you remember what I shared in the fallout of our Second Timothy series? 
Do you remember that one out of eight Christians globally is under direct persecution worldwide just because they're Christians? That's 260 million Christians are jailed, raped, churches are burnt down. They're not allowed to convert from another faith to Christianity. The, the Bible literally is physically being changed to come online or in line with government worldviews. It goes on and on. Like I shared during the pandemic in 2020, and by the way, these numbers have got worse in 2021. 9,488 churches were burned or attacked. 2,983 Christians were murdered, were murdered for their faith. That's happening right now. And this passage reminds us to be aware of many of our brothers and sisters. But, but this forces us even to a deeper place where this whole series is taking us. I love that Open Doors, one of the most intelligently gathered thinking tanks about persecution. They wrote this. They said, you know, persecution by definition is any hostility experienced as a result of one's identification with Jesus. This can include hostile attitudes, words, actions towards Christians. And so actually when that's the definition of persecution, it comes even close home today for us here in Canada. When you declare Jesus is the only way to heaven, when you say God is the creator and has the final say in sexuality, when you choose not to lie or cheat, but your boss wants you to, and, and you won't do it because you're a Christian, and suddenly you lose access to that promotion or that new job, that technically also is persecution. This doesn't apply to your view on vaccines, by the way or your political views, or being a jerk, or, or, or cheating on taxes. No, no, no. That's a personal opinion. Don't tie those. That's not about persecution. But when you declare there's a heaven and hell, when, when you gently and kindly but firmly declare that being nice and good does not get you to heaven, it does not bring life change. When you stand up and say, actually, being good does nothing to move God's heart. When you stand up and say abortion is murder, and the life of the elderly should be guarded. When you say medically assisted suicide is murder, when you say that we need to defend the widow and the orphan in the immigrant in Jesus' name, youth by the left and right will be small be persecuted. Again, let me say what I said earlier this year. I want to say this loudly and clearly. As orthodox, confessional, historic, Biblically informed Christians, we will be attacked by the Hamans of our day, both on the right and the left, because we belong to another kingdom. And think about this. Our customs are different. We're pro-life and pro-immigrant in Jesus' name at the same time. People don't get that. We boldly declare that Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to heaven, and yet we, in the civic sense, guard the right and defend the right for anyone to believe anything in our culture. That doesn't make sense. But our customs are what? Different. We know that God has called us to holy lives, even in our sexual worldview, but we also re resist and fight against any form of violence towards anyone because of their sexual orientation. That doesn't make sense in the world, but our customs are different because we belong to another king and another kingdom. Most of us will not be beaten. I don't think our sites will be burned down. But in Canada, like we've been talking over the last few weeks, we are moving from a, a Christian moment, sort of, to a post-Christian moment, to a neo-pagan moment. We're moving from apathy to hostility in our culture towards scripture, towards the claims of Jesus, and towards the demands of our God. But no matter, not if, but when the Haman moment comes, 
by a boss or a friend or a family member or online. And you stand and don't kneel down. Don't hate the person, but pray for your enemy and rejoice because what did Jesus teach us in the Sermon on the Mount? If you're a Christian in Canada, listen, Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when people insult you about your faith, not anything else, your faith. When they persecute you, when they lie and say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We need to think about persecution on a sliding scale. Most people say it's all or nothing. I see so many people online saying, oh, you Canadians, Christian, you're not persecuted. Actually, it's not either torture, death, rape because you're a Christian or nothing. It's this sliding scale. So, yes, in this post-Christian, post-secular, neo-pagan moment, there is growing small c persecution, small p persecution. But we also need to be reminded and not forget that many of our brothers and sisters are living in situations much closer to Mordecai and Esther. And we need to pray for them. We need to remember them, remember them, advocate for them, have the courage to stand for them. When's the last time you thought about our many brothers and sisters during a pandemic also being persecuted for their faith? So yeah, there are many people standing around the world and it's very difficult. And I think we're all starting to realize here we're gonna have to stand and it's gonna be difficult. But God's with us. But actually, where I'm going to end this message is the most important thing. This is what was pressed on me deeply. I would actually say by the Holy Spirit. This dark passage is a gift by God for you. See, the deepest insight and the most important question being asked of you personally is this. What have you left undone? Let me make the whole connection. Saul did not do what God asked him. And this undone undone task keeps coming up again and again generationally. A whole nation in this moment is at stake because of Saul's personal disobedience generations earlier. See, when God asks you to do something, it's for his glory, and it's also for your freedom. And it also is working out God's purposes. Think about this. Haman would not have even existed if Saul had obeyed God. This whole moment would not have happened that we know about because of the obedience of Saul. So when God speaks to us, he knows what should happen and what should not happen. Has God asked you something and you've just not obeyed? See, this is, so this is so important because God tends to ask us things realizing what will happen next. When life becomes hard, when we experience trouble like we are right now, you don't need a crack in the wall that existed before the difficult moment. You don't need an undealt with landmine and suddenly you step on it in the middle of a time when you don't have any margin left. You don't need the lack of God's promises or the lack of God's blessing because you did not obey him before the difficult time. So here's what we need to settle in. And I can just pray this. In Jesus' name, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit to speak to your church now so there will be freedom. Ask yourself this question. Has God asked me to do something and I have not done it? Maybe God's commanded you to be baptized and you keep putting it off for a thousand reasons. Or or maybe you stopped giving to his work because of the pandemic. 
And God's like, but I'm going to provide for you. Or, or maybe there's a person you've not forgiven and God keeps saying, you, you know what, I'm going to give you the power. You need to forgive that person. Maybe the Holy Spirit prompted you to invite someone to an online service or Alpha and you just didn't obey. What I'm going to say next sat with me the strongest. Has God asked you to be silent? And, and I, I want to preface this as I keep going. I have no one in my mind right now. I'm not thinking about someone in our church. Has When I was praying, this kept coming to my mind. I had to write it down. Has God asked you to be quiet, to close your mouth, but you keep on posting and keep on talking and keep on influencing because if you don't take control, the world will not be okay. I'm not sure if who this is for, whether it's about politics or vaccinations or theology, but someone or a group who is listening to me, you know the Lord has actually commanded your silence, has commanded you go quiet because he's trying to teach you trust and obedience. And you've forgotten that he's God and actually there's more at stake. Let me give you a personal example. I've used this before. I was in chapters a few years ago. I was in the religion section and I saw people in front of me picking up all these books that I knew were badly written and actually scholarship-wise, they weren't even true. And I was like, oh my goodness, don't read that. Read this one because that one's not even true. And then behind me is the New Age section and these people are pulling out all these divination books. And I just wanted to grab everyone and say, stop, stop, stop. Don't read that. Read the scriptures and don't read that. That's actual guard. And the Holy Spirit said, John, Do you think I can defend myself? And I was like, but Lord, and he said, I appreciate, I gave you the gift of teaching. I gave you the gift of discernment. I know why you're losing your mind. But do you think that maybe, just maybe, I've got this and I can help these people? And and what the Holy Spirit was teaching me is I had to humble myself and stop trying to control everything. He actually demanded my silence, even in a place where I wanted to act, because he was reminding me he works everything out. Has God demanded your silence? If he has, shh, more is at stake than you realize. Here's another thing. Is there a sin that you're being hidden about? See, Saul compromised because he obeyed God sort of, mostly, but didn't do it fully. And it led to his demise and then led to the story of Esther. Has God asked you to confess a sin, a struggle, something that keeps on happening or maybe only happened 20, 30, 40 years ago and you've never talked about it and confessed it before others and God? Well, actually do it. Remember, God gave us as a church a new name. Sanctus, holy, be a holy church. I know some of you who are listening to me go, John, I know the Holy Spirit keeps talking to me, but it's not that bad. Or I know what the Bible says, but I I know better and it's not a sin. Don't be salt. Don't mix, like I said last week, salt and sand. Don't be salt and say, well, I'm going to obey God mostly. No, no, no. Obey him. Confess, trust, be in community. If God has asked you to do something and it's a positive thing, do it. If there is an unconfessed or mixed growing thing in your life, confess it, get in Christian community, confess it before God and be clean. And here's the last one. Has God asked you to close a back door that you've kept open? So many of us keep our options open. Saul was famous for this. It's like we have a back door, almost the image in my mind is like a little door in the back of our minds. It's little doors and little thoughts. Here's an example just to help. Yeah, yeah, I'm married and and it's fine. But you know, if things go bad, you know, I've got other options. Back door. Back door. If you have back doors 
in your mind, and God has actually said those back doors should not exist, then you need to go before the Lord and say, I don't want to be Saul. I want to be fully obedient. I don't want the Amalekites to show up in my life years later, and I don't want the Amalekites to show up generations later in my own family's life that might kill the faith of of our community or our family. God gives us this dark passage to remind us He wins. God gives us this passage to remind us, yes, we're going to have to stand like Mordecai and stand well, but we are, we're going to have to define the standing only about things related to the Christian faith, not politics, not other things we're passionate about. And here's my challenge to you. If your neighbor or friend as a, as a non-Christian can't distinguish what you stand, at, stand up about connected to faith, and your other things, you're mixing salt and sand. You're standing about the wrong things. But we are going to have to stand, and persecution is coming. This also reminds us to pray for those who are in need. But the greatest invitation by God is to make sure we don't leave something something undone that will have an effect later. So we end with a simple prayer. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. Help us to be incredibly good citizens. Help us to learn how to stand like Mordecai even when it's difficult. And help us to learn to stand about the right things. But our real invitation is, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you bring to mind, as people are listening, the things that you have asked us to do, whether positive or negative, so we obey them, that you'd expose any sin that we are, we're playing with that will lead to destruction later, or you would actually point out any back doors we're trying to keep our options open, even though, Lord, we know that door shouldn't even exist. Would you actually make us like Mordecai, the better Saul, so actually your kingdom can flourish more in our life, but actually way beyond our life in the generations to come. Do this unusual thing. Would you devotionally over the next seven to 10 days work out so many conversations with so many people? We ask this in the name of Jesus. And we all sit together. Amen.